Thanks for downloading Development Drums number 14. This is Owen Bader in Ethiopia. It's another glorious sunny day here in Addis Ababa, home to the African Union and to the UN Economic Commission for Africa. We're going to be talking today about the business of giving. I'll be talking to Matthew Bishop and Mike Green, whose new book, Philanthropy Capitalism, is a comprehensive and quite positive account of philanthropy, including in international development. And in a new innovation for Development Drums, I'll be asking questions put by you, the listeners, through the Development Drums blog at developmentdrums.org or through our Facebook group. So if you want to ask questions for, for future episodes, please sign up to the Facebook group now. In forthcoming episodes of Development Drums, we'll be looking at social protection and safety nets. I'll be talking to Peter Singer about his new book called The Ethics of Development and Charity. And I'm planning an episode also on taxation and development. So if you'd like to suggest a guest on these topics, or you have questions you want to hear Development Drums address, or if you'd like to suggest another topic, please either join up to the Facebook group or leave your comment on the Development Drums blog. about philanthropy and I'm joined by Matthew Bishop and Mike Green who are the authors of Philanthrocapitalism which is a recent book about the philanthropic work of the super rich. Whether you're a supporter of philanthropy or a sceptic this is the most authoritative account of that approach, the people, the attitudes and the organisations. Matthew Bishop is the chief business writer for The Economist. He's been the New York Bureau Chief and he's been on the faculty at the London Business School. Matthew, welcome to Development Drums. Yeah, great to be with you. And you're also a Davos Young Global Leader, is that right? Uh, that's so they say. Uh, and is there no age cutoff for that? At what point do you become an old global leader? <laughs> you know, they regard themselves as still in the prime of life when many of them are 60 and 70, so young is a relative term. Excellent. And Mike Green, who you heard laughing in the background there, is a former colleague of mine at the UK Department for International Development. And before that, Mike, you were a journalist and you taught economics. Um, it's good to have you on Development Grants. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. And I suppose for full disclosure, we should say that you used to be my boss, so I have to be very nice to you. That is exactly right. And while we're on full disclosure, since we're talking about philanthropy, I should say that my, in my day job, um, the team that I... Uh, lead working on uh, aid transparency is funded by two of the big foundations that we'll be talking about, the Gates Foundation and the Hewlett Foundation. Anyway, it's, it's good to have you both on and I'll be putting to you for the first time on Development Drums some questions that listeners have asked on the Development Drums group on Facebook. So if you're listening now and you want to see what future topics are going to be on and put your own questions to future guests, Log into Facebook, look for Development Drums, and put your questions there. So, Matthew, Mike, can we start by talking about who and what we mean by philanthrocapitalism? This is a, a term that you invented, isn't it, Matthew? Yes, I invented it uh, three years ago in a special report on the business of giving um, for The Economist. That I, uh, and it seemed to me uh, that philanthrocapitalism had two meanings. One's a macro meaning, one micro meaning. The micro meaning is that, um, uh, that the, many of the new entrepreneurial rich, super rich, um, are 
turning to philanthropy and doing so in a way where they're not just writing checks, but really using everything that's uh, great about their style of business, the way they make their money, uh, when they come to giving it away. So they're really trying to uh, solve problems in an entrepreneurial way rather than, uh, rather than building you know, monuments themselves. Um, in the macro sense, philanthropic capitalism is also this uh, way in which um, actually maybe there's something inherently uh, philanthropic in capitalism, that, and you see that when capitalism has its greatest years of wealth creation throughout history, going all the way back to the uh, the Renaissance Europe, um, that this golden era of capitalism always seems to have associated with it um, some of the winners of that philanthropy, of, of that uh, capitalism, are giving away um, their money and also doing it as this current generation of philanthropic capitalists doing, doing it in a way that is in some sense reflective of the skills and talents and mindset that help them make money in business. So let's delve in a, in a minute into what it is that these people are bringing to the issues that they address, but just to frame how big of a movement we're talking about here. I mean, most people will have heard about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that's spending money, uh, both Bill Gates's fortune from Microsoft, but also uh, Warren Buffett's uh, fortune um, from Hathaway. Um, but how big, Mike, relative to, for example, international aid, how much are we talking about uh, what proportion of, you know, uh, how much money is there going into international development from this kind of philanthropy now? Well, I think this year the Gates Foundation is pledging to give away more than $3 billion. Now, not all of that's going on international development, but a very large chunk is. So that's kind of a scale of giving we've never seen before. But what's striking is that Gates himself describes his foundation as a tiny, tiny organisation um, relative to the other players in the field. Um, so I guess in terms of total aid flows, it's no more than a few percent. Um, and I think this is one of the things we try and argue in the book, it's not necessarily about the sum of money they're giving, but it's the way they're given, the things that they can do. But, so just to, to nail down the numbers, if the Gates Foundation is $3 billion a year, of which only some is international development, then we're looking in development terms, because the Gates Foundation is is an order of magnitude bigger, isn't it, than any other foundation. So it's all the others are, are, are a lot smaller than the Gates Foundation. In total, we'd be looking at four or five billion dollars a year? Something like that, I would guess. I mean, that only includes the very big donors. It doesn't include all philanthropic flows, all charitable flows, all remittance flows. Right. Um, I mean, there's some data from the US that says that far exceeds total aid. If you narrow down just on the super rich giving, it's probably about four or five billion dollars, although the numbers aren't reliable. And that compares to about 120 billion dollars a year of, of official uh, ODA aid assistance. So it's, as you say, it's a, it's a four or five percent, that kind of order of magnitude of official aid. So it, its value is not so much that it adds an enormous amount to the amount of money we're giving, but the way that the money is used and, and so on, and I think we'll we'll come to that. What I what I was struck by is that you said um, that you approached this issue actually quite sceptically at first, but by the time you'd finished the book and finished the research, you had become quite enthusiastic about the role that philanthropy can play. What, uh, my, uh, what changed your mind? 
I mean, I suppose it was, I mean, Matthew started uh, writing about philanthropy, well, about five or six years ago, um, as he started meeting some of the philanthropists. And we talked more and more about what they were doing. And, you know, I talked about it with colleagues within the official aid business. And especially on the, in the health field, a lot of cynicism, a feeling that they were just repeating the same old mistakes, going for the soft targets. Um, and that was very much the attitude I came at it with. What I found as I researched more and more through the book, that some of the criticisms actually weren't valid. Now, in part, that was because they were never valid, but more importantly, because the way in which the philanthropists have changed what they're doing. Patty Stonecipher, who used to be the chief executive of the, um, of the Gates Foundation, she actually says, you know, when we went into this, we were product development people. We thought this was about getting a technological solution we realized that wasn't the case. And what really impressed me is the way that some of these organizations have learned quickly and adjusted what they're doing based on the evidence and feedback they've received. So I think my view has changed partly because some of the criticisms, I think, were the established aid business sneering at people coming into the business. And then secondly, I think because the foundations themselves have changed the way they're giving because they've learned. So let's, let's um, focus a bit on what it is that the uh, philanthropic organisations bring. Um, uh, in, the, in the first chapter of your book, you say that one reason we need philanthropy is because governments are constrained in the amount of tax they can raise. Um, and you say that that means that we need wealthy individuals to lend a hand. But you seem to be saying that actually the main reason we need philanthropy is not because of the money, but because of other things they bring. And one of the listeners on, uh, on the Facebook group, Jessica Pickett, has asked you if you can explain what is the comparative advantage of the philanthropists compared to the official donors? Well, I, I think the, um, the advantage is partly uh, the experience they've had in the, uh, working in the business world, which gives them um, a different sense of, of the world. They, they bring a um, quite an empowered sense of themselves, uh, uh, an experience of um, fixing systemic problems um, and doing so quickly uh, in answers that uh, doing and often often quickly anyway in ways that um, can quickly scale up to, um, to to massive global proportions. Uh, so it's partly that business mindset. And it's also an institutional advantage, which is that, um, you know, which I think some people would see as a, a downside, and, and we, we argue, you know, is that it has to be managed very carefully. But this institutional advantage is that they're not really accountable to anyone. Um, they haven't got to worry about um, short-term pressures like getting elected or um, keeping the shareholder paid by reporting uh, uh, and profits or your charity, the pub where you're constantly having to uh, go cap it in hand and make your case over and over again. They have this money, they have this convening power quite often that they get because they have the money and the ability to fund meetings and reach whoever they need to get. Um, and they can think long term, they can take really big risks. Um, if they lose the money and the, because the project doesn't work, then that's their money and they've chosen to do it and they haven't got to go um, and apologize or explain for anyone. And that gives them a tremendous freedom that's almost entirely absent in the rest of the, of the system. I, at this point was really brought home to me talking to Michael Bloomberg, the mayor of New York, who we write about at quite some length in the book, who said that I come into 
government as mayor of New York as a businessman looking to change things. And I found that it was almost impossible to take risk in government because uh, of the press and the uh, the, the politicians and who would have to vote on the budget just being so risk of us. And so in the end he started to work with lots of private sector philanthropists to fund pilot projects uh, that if they succeeded he could then go to the uh, city politicians and to the press and say, look, this is something that works. Um, you know, we can actually scale it up through public funds. And it's quite interesting to me that uh, the Barack Obama's administration has uh, created an office of social innovation in the White House, which is very much looking to work with social entrepreneurs and philanthropists. And their operating slogan is scaling what works. And I think it's the philanthropists that uh, bring things to the point where they can demonstrate what works. Let me, let me probe this a bit, because there's an appealing model that you use philanthropy to, to, to do the risky things, which people find it hard to do in the public sector, to be innovative, to uh, use kind of business ideas of, of testing things out and then taking them to scale. What strikes me, though, as somebody who's worked with the foundations, is that although that's a, that theoretically that ought to be their comparative advantage, it often isn't true that often foundations actually employ a bunch of people who um, have worked for the big aid agencies, the World Bank, UN, USAID, and they become large organisations that have the same set of incentives and bureaucratic needs as any other. And often you get these big foundations only agreeing to do anything if a bunch of other donors will come in with them um, in the development business. Now, I, I see that that isn't true of of Mayor Bloomberg and his activities, but is this? Do you, have you seen in the in the development field real evidence that foundations are much more uh, willing to take risks and think long term and do unpopular things and all those things that ought to be their comparative advantage? I mean, I think there's one great example in the international de development field of philanthropists doing something the governments can't, and that's the Mo Ibrahim Prize for Leadership in Africa. But there's no way the British government, the World Bank, the UN could offer a prize and offer judgments on the quality of governance and leadership in Africa. It's just too political. And so what the Moebrin Foundation has done in establishing a prize and setting a bunch of benchmarks against which they measure every African leader is do something that no one else can do. Now, maybe this will bring some political change in Africa, maybe it won't. But I think Ibrahim is able to take that risk because, as Matthew says, all he's doing is risking his money. Right. And the other great, another great example at the moment um, is the malaria uh, initiative that's going on that's being driven by the uh, Malaria No More campaign, driven by the Gates Foundation in partnership with the World Bank, News International, um, the National Basketball Association, um, DFID, um, all these different parties coming together to try and um, uh, sort of really reduce dramatically the number of deaths from malaria, um, which was something that you know, I think has only really gathered any momentum because of Gates being willing to go against the conventional wisdom in global public health, which was uh, very much let's try and build systems of health care and get away from this uh, polio or smallpox-like obsession with wiping out um, particular diseases. Um, and I think Gates has been criticised by a lot of people, but he rightly says, you know, he has energised that whole field, and there are just hundreds of scientists now and other people who are going to get in addressing issues of public health 
um, we, who would never have touched it under that old, rather sort of sensible but um, uninspiring uh, consensus approach. So I think in that sense, he's gone out on a limb in a way that no uh, civil servant or um, sort of um, multilateral uh, agency worker would ever have, have dared do. Now, you know, this is a risky thing. It may prove that this is a, it turns out to be a disaster and malaria isn't wiped out, or if it is, um, it's done at a terrible cost to the general health system. Gates doesn't believe that, and I, I kind of think he's right, but I could see ways in which he isn't. It might all go horribly wrong. Um, but that's the nature of risk, and I think he's re-energized the field. Um, but you're right, you know, you go to some, many, many, many foundations, as we say in the book, are not impressive, they don't take risks, they replicate what governments and multilateral agencies do rather than uh, challenge them and innovate. And so part of the call of the book is to say to the old philanthropists or even, you know, even some of the new philanthropists who haven't taken these risk-taking approaches that their comparative advantage lies in the ability to uh, you know, fund bold, risky, um, innovative ideas. Do you detect a difference between the foundations whose, uh, whose benefactor is still alive uh, and those that are the success, you know, the, uh, after the Rockefeller uh, bequest has gone and you've now got these foundations who are run by professional foundation managers? Is there a difference in... Stu- is the determinant whether the, the, the benefactor is still pushing the foundation to be edgy and risk-taking or not? Well, you mentioned the Rockefeller Foundation, and, one of the, and that's one of the foundations we profile as being a leader of the old foundations embracing the, the philanthrocapitalist approach, um, because the uh, previous um, incumbent was left and a, a, new, a new head of the foundation was brought in, Judy Rodan, who basically yeah, threw out all the old philanthrocrats and uh, got rid of the siloed always doing what you've always done approach and and really turned the place on its head. I mean, very controversially, it got very bad press for doing so. But I think it's now starting to reap the rewards of, of taking risks. So it doesn't need to be just new new foundations. It can be old ones that get changed. I just think it's if it's your own money, you have a, a greater degree of confidence in, in, in saying, well, it's, I made this money. If I lose it all, then it's only my loss. Whereas if you inherit money or you are a professional in charge of some money that someone else has made, you tend to take them on balance. You, on, on average, you probably feel that you're more a steward um, of a legacy rather than an investor of capital in social change. So would, you, uh, would your instinct be that, on the whole, people should aim to, to have their foundations spend their wealth while they're still alive, that you, they shouldn't be trying to create legacy foundations that go on after them? I think that if they can, that's the best way of doing it. Um, I mean, one of the most active philanthropists who challenges his foundations is George Soros. I mean, he sets up multiple foundations in different countries. Um, He shuts them down when they don't work. Um, He's very aggressive in that. But I think he talks about how he's struggling with the problem of having too much money to give away during his lifetime. So I think he's thinking about how to set up incentives uh, after his death so the foundation is still kept sort of lean and mean. And I think we write a bit in the book about the Templeton Foundation, um, which was set up uh, by the, the financier John Templeton, who died last year. 
And he actually set out very clear rules after his death that there's a sort of an annual evaluation of how the foundation does. And if it deserts its original purpose, the president of the foundation, who's his son, will actually be booted out. So I think there's some interesting innovations going on with people coping with how to keep their foundations lively after they're dead. Now, you talk about a, a division of labour between philanthropy and government, and we've hinted that a bit, at that a bit up to now because we've been talking about the, the role of foundations of being innovative and risk-taking. And you, but you talk about the need for a kind of a new social contract. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I think, um, you know, the, the, particularly since the economic crisis, but I think it was very much underway before that, um, there's been this trend towards growing inequality and growing concern amongst the population as a whole about this emergence of a new class of super-rich. Um, we believe um, that the, if the super-rich um, you know, behave in uh, ways that actually promote society, both the way in which they create their wealth and the way they can give their wealth back um, you know, can actually be a huge asset and something that we as a society as a whole ought to encourage. Um, however, without um, the appropriate behavior from the super-rich, um, their wealth can be a very, very destabilizing factor. And so, um, you know, we want there to be a debate um, between or involving both the super-rich and pub the public as large as to what that, that contract ought to be that allows the rich to play a positive role rather than just have to, um, to be regarded as somewhat um, exploitative and parochial figures. And so, you know, we, we think that we set out this thing which we call the Good Billionaires Guide. And we think that um, to, to be well thought of by the public as a whole and to be given the freedom to actually get involved in solving controversial political, um, you know, quasi-political issues like, you know, poverty and development and public health, um, the, the rich need to make their money in a way that's non-exploitative. They need to um, pay their taxes, or at least an appropriate amount of tax, that um, you know, that actually is a lot more of a proportion of their wealth than the average population. Um, and they need to um, give, uh, and they need to give a larger share of their wealth and income than uh, people with less money. And they need to not just give, but give thoughtfully in ways that are designed to achieve impact and change. And so if they can meet those four criteria, um, we think that they should actually be, their wealth and their philanthropy, you know, does deserve to be celebrated by society as a whole. If they don't, then, um, you know, as uh, Andrew Carnegie, the, the Victorian American steel baron, put it, if someone who uh, dies rich, if they die that, uh, die rich that, uh, because they haven't given their money away um, while they were alive, they die disgraced. Uh, we, I mean, in, in a way, the, the, um, the timing of your book is a bit unlucky because it, it, it appears as if it might be coming at the end of a, a, of a long boom and presumably therefore a golden period of, of philanthropy that may actually peter out if we don't have super rich people uh, in, the, in the next couple of decades. I mean, do you see the... Well, I th I honestly, honestly, I, mean, I, think, I think that's... I mean, the world has got a lot of... Uh, has got to make itself a lot worse off um, than it is already at the moment. I, I think the crisis has clearly wiped out a lot of wealth, but um, there are still an awful lot of rich people out there compared to even five or ten years ago. Um, uh, you know, many people who are wealthy 
are going to make a, a lot of money during the sorting out phase of the current crisis. And unless we completely derail the globalization process, which has been bringing a large part of the global population out of poverty into the mainstream global economy and, and creating lots of wealth in the process, unless we completely derail that process, then I think that the trend towards wealth creation and creating particularly very large fortunes at the top of the pyramid is going to resume. And in fact, you know, this will be a a pause, and in fact it will be a pause that encourages more of the wealthy to become philanthropic than uh, maybe would have happened if there hadn't been a crisis. So I'm, I'm by no means taking it for granted that this is the end of a golden era. I think, you know, there's very much to play for, and I, my, my gut instinct is that, that this is but a pause in the trends that we see towards uh, greater wealth creation, and particularly at the top of the, of the income and wealth distribution. But as you were implying, it's not so much whether we're creating wealth and growth resumes, although that's important, but also whether we have the kind of inequality that we've seen in the last, really in the 20th century, where very where there are enough people who are seriously rich to really make a difference. And that, it's not absolutely certain, is it, that uh, capitalism won't um, adjust in some way to, to move to a more... Uh, a more egalitarian model. Well, it depends whether you believe. It depends whether you believe ultimately that um, the innovation process is going to um, fundamentally change. I, I mean, much of the wealth of the of the Bill Gates, uh, Warren Buffett, um, George Soros, uh, Google guys kind of wealth is 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 the result of um, them being very innovative and entrepreneurial in the business that activities that they get involved in and you know I think they are typically um, collect keeping a, a large amount of the wealth that they create but also uh, creating a lot of other wealthy people in the process or working with others who become very wealthy so I think that that um, is a function. Of that's, quite, that's quite a rosy view, isn't it? Because uh, you could argue that they're, they're the 20th century equivalent of the robber barons, that, that they're not so much innovators but monopolists. I think that's a difficult case, a difficult case to make. Um, you know, yes, obviously Gates has at some point uh, got so big that there were antitrust issues, but you know, a lot of the um, a lot of what he's done has been to brilliantly uh, make available personal computing to to the population of the world, and he was um, you know, ahead of everyone else in, in finding a way to do that. Um, and he, you could hardly say he was without competition. Um, you know, Apple was around at the same time and is still around now, and they don't seem to have uh, won anything like the kind of market share that Gates has, and I think that's because Gates has actually been more effective in reaching a large number of customers. I mean, I, it's very hard to my mind to see who Google uh, has exploited. I mean, maybe you could say it's exploited the newspaper industry or something, but it's hard to really make that case. I mean, it seems to me what they've done is provide an immensely valuable uh, service, which is the ability to search the information on the internet, which we all love to use, and they found a way of monetizing that and selling shares in the company that does that. And as a result, you've helped, you've got these two guys, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, who've become multi-billionaires in their early 30s. You talk in the book about this winner-takes-all economy and some aspects of, of the uh, particularly internet-related industries are of this nature that, uh, that, people t that they tend towards natural monopolies, that 
that everybody wants to use the same service. Every, if, if everybody else is using Windows, then I should too. So maybe what we're going to see also is some concentration of wealth as, as a result of that kind of tendency. I think one thing we talk about in, is the, uh, in this social contract, this good billionaire guide, is looking at the way the wealth has been earned. Um, and I think it's certainly true to say that there are some uh, billionaires, especially from emerging markets, um, who've used their ability to capture, say, assets in privatizations to earn spectacular fortunes. And that's very different from someone like Gates, who's subject to anti-monopoly laws and who indeed has had to pay fines. Microsoft have to pay fines. Um, for the for what their their market abuses as decided by the courts, so I think there's a difference now. We we've got to judge those people, and in a sense, maybe a difference in the expectation about how much they should be giving, um, depending on how the money has been earned. In a sense, it's got to be judged on a kind of a case by case basis. I just want to add one other point, which is I think one of the reasons I think we're optimistic that giving is going to increase is actually the shift in the pattern of global billionaires, and um, that a lot of the new philanthropists are actually coming from places like India, and in a sense, especially around what we call international development, which for them is actually national development. Um, you've got billionaires who are much closer to those countries, to those challenges, who want to start giving back, and I think we're starting to see this in Latin America. China, other places. Um, I think we, should, you know, after Mo Ibrahim, we're waiting to see the next great African billionaire philanthropist. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting change in the dynamics, isn't it? Let's let's just quickly pause on the short-term effect of the financial crisis. You're making a compelling case that normal service will resume uh, as the world economy begins to recover. But in the short term, here in Ethiopia. I know several organizations that are getting grants from mainly U.S. foundations that are having to make quite big in-year budget cuts. I mean, not just taking a few percent off in the way that civil service might, but having to take 20% or more out of their budgets in-year. Um, and a lot of these foundations are required to spend 5% of their total assets each year because that's what they have to do for tax reasons. So when the stock market falls, the value of the portfolio goes down, so does their grant making. So is there a risk that this is a kind of boom and bust source of funding for international development and actually that it will, just at the time here in Ethiopia where actually what we need is more aid, that philanthropy will tend to operate pro-cyclically, it will tend to reinforce the cycle. What's your sense of what's happening in the short run and what that tells us? Well, I think there's been a, you know, obviously, um, because the markets have been down so sharply and not just that but because people have had real deep questions about what's the future shape of the the global economy and global wealth going to be a lot of people i think have uh, been much more cautious and in many cases reduced their giving um in the past six to nine months um however it's still a very large Amount, let's say in the worst case scenario, maybe down 20% from what it was a year ago, but that's probably still up um, on what it was five years earlier than that. Um, but in some cases, people like Bill Gates, uh, Bill, Bill Gates is giving away 3.7 billion this year, which is his largest amount by far. Um, many other philanthropists are increasing their giving. And what is happening, which we find, I think, most exciting, is the, um, the realization that it's not the amount of money, but how you give that really counts um, is is actually taking hold even more deeply than it might have done um, had things just carried on growing. Um, people 
you know, I think because of the, of, of the sense of disappointment that they've had to maybe give away slightly less, they're really wanting to make sure that their money does make a difference now. And so, for example, they are thinking about which of the organizations that I support do I really believe has to come through this crisis and come through it in better shape than before, and which am I, on balance, willing to see um, you know, maybe fail and disappear. And if I do think there are some organizations that need to survive and others that don't, how do I make sure that those organizations do survive? And if necessary, do I get similar organizations to encourage them to merge and so forth? Things that are very hard to do in good times you know, can be done in bad times. And I think that, in a way, is the business person's mentality that actually a crisis is a great time to start a new firm. Um, and to do some hard things in your own company that uh, maybe uh, needed doing in good times, but there just wasn't the willpower to do it. But, but, but a crisis concentrates the mind. And I'm seeing that happening all over the place in philanthropy, that people are saying, well, I'm giving a bit, bit less, but I'm going to make sure we do the hard things and, and really get value for that money. So we're reporting some of the cycle of creation and destruction that, that regenerates capitalism into a, a sector, into the development sector that hasn't in the past had that kind of uh, iteration? I think, I think that desire is there. The question is going to be, you know, is it, is it going to happen thoroughly enough? Because, you know, in the, in the for-profit world, you know, essentially there is the ability through acquiring ownership uh, in the marketplace to, to drive that change much faster. Uh, here in the non-profit world, Many organisations you know, are, are immune to those market forces, and so even if um, they're not doing very well, and, and they, they they somehow there's enough volunteers out there, enough people willing to just give them enough to limp on, that there's no the, the, the destructive part is is just not there in the creative destruction, and even though the, the philanthropists want them to to, to be much more. Uh, productive and efficient and do those things, they have the power to resist those those pressures in, in a way. And so we're hoping to see, um, you know, the, the public attitudes towards um, non-profits that change, the people to say, look, actually you play an important role in the economy and in, and in society, you do need to raise your game and you do need to be uh, using the money that we entrust you with well. And that may mean that you can't just carry on. You may actually have to uh, you know, join up with somebody else and give up your independence or, or actually shut down and let the money go elsewhere. Let's, let's turn that as a good segue into the question of whether this, this kind of funding actually works, whether it produces results. And one of our listeners, Laura Say, has asked me to ask you this. She says, what good does it, does, does it do poor people if rich people regularly gather together in expensive hotels to talk about the best way to help poor people? Why is development such a top-down enterprise when we know that most efforts conceived in the developed world flop miserably when implemented where help is needed? And uh, that, kind of added, that kind of worry that these are rich people meeting together in hotels who, who don't know enough about uh, what really works in poor countries is quite widespread. And you, you talk also about, in your book, about uh, some criticisms of uh, Jamie Cooper Home. Is that how you pronounce uh, her name? She yeah. manages the Children's Investment Fund Foundation. Um, and one of the, you quote a senior NGO executive who has some disobliging things to say about her style and approach. 
And when I lived on the West Coast in the States, I had the impression that there were a lot of very well-meaning people on the West Coast, but that they didn't know a hell of a lot about development and didn't know much about what had been tried, what had worked, what had been learned. And they, they brought a, a very innovative and entrepreneurial mindset, but they didn't, they seemed to be reinventing quite a lot of wheels. So uh, what, what are the, uh, apart from um, the Green Revolution, which we can talk about, what are the examples of success that these people have brought about. Maybe it's worth just picking on this point about the. I mean, there was an earlier criticism saying that foundations bring in lots of people from the World Bank and other aid agencies, and that was one critique. And another critique is they don't learn from past mistakes. So there is a pretty fine line to be walked here of of you know, learning from the past but also being innovative. And I think one of the things. I mean, there's always this figure about the tiny percentage of US congressmen who have a passport is actually I think you know, your billionaires probably a lot more of them are, are traveled and have experience of the world um, and in doing things and achieving things in the world so I think there, there is an audience that actually does bring there's, there's a, these actors who bring a lot of expertise well, they, don't and politics, to be fair. they don't know much about the lives of the poor or what works in terms of, of building community level development projects I mean, they might know how to do business well, in, that, in Bangalore, but they don't know a lot about providing clean sanitation in Malawi, do they? Well, that's not, maybe that's not necessarily the thing that they should be doing then, because um, not all development necessarily happens at community level bo bottom-up. I think it's about them finding where they can bring their expertise to make a change in difference whether it is something. I mean, I think this is why the Ibrahim Prize is a great example. Here's someone who's gone around, done a lot of business in Africa, has realized that the way to what's been the basis of successful business in Africa has been sound political systems that have been able to offer him, you know, um, for his mobile phone business, a safe operating environment. He's seen how important politics, sound politics is for development, and therefore that's something he's backing. Now, that's absolutely top-down. That's about the top of political leadership. Uh, um, but it's something that has a potential to have an impact. Not yet, that's definitely true, but that's part of a risk-taking approach. But a lot of what, of what these foundations are engaged in are much more, in, in many ways, trying to add value and innovate in, in much more conventional development contexts of trying to provide people with access to medical care or education or uh, water. And in those cases, is, is, are there um, shining examples of where the involvement of foundations has brought something new or different or more successful that wouldn't have happened through the normal development agencies and multilateral international organisations? I mean, I think you can claim certainly one of I mean, the great successes of the past, of course, was support for microfinance. I mean, Mohammed Yunus supported by the Ford Foundation very early on. So I think part of the skill is actually finding the people from within the community to be ideas, whose expertise and ideas can be harnessed. Yeah, those we ideas can be taken seriously. We should just explain, Mohammed Yunus is the man who uh, set up the Grameen Foundation, which uh, pro provides, my, very successfully, provides microfinance loans primarily to women. And you'll find, I mean, this is what struck us, I think, in the course of writing the book, is that time and time again, there are organizations you come across that you um, discover uh, that philanthropy played a key role um, in the in the early stages. Um, you know, for example, if you look at um, Ashoka, which is this extraordinary organization that supports 
social entrepreneurs, particularly in the developing world. Um, you know, for example, uh, they they just struggled to get any funding to get going, and then uh, uh, Bill. Um, uh, Bill Drayton. Bill Drayton, sorry. Yeah. Bill Drayton, who founded it, got a genius grant from the MacArthur Foundation and was able to give up his job at McKinsey and actually devote full time uh, to a year to get the network up and running. And then he got other foundations coming in and, and funding it. Um, you know, then you look at also how foundations are starting to understand that, um, you know, public opinion is very, very important to supporting policy changes. And so whether it be uh, the story we write about the data organization now called One that Bono set up, he went with a business plan to Bill Gates and George Soros and another guy called Ed Scott and got Leach, gave him a million dollars and said, okay, we'll seed your organization. And then they've gone around and played a huge role in... Uh, in, in pushing public opinion behind the G8 in uh, 2005 with the uh, debt reduction and aid promises that were made then. Or um, Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, that was funded by a philanthropist, Jeff Skull, the first chief executive of, of eBay. So we're, we're, and these are just stories picked at random. I think I've just been amazed that you know, although um, you know, public movements are absolutely... Uh, just crucial to the success of policy change. Often, often, much more often than I would have expected, you see um, the role of the hand of a philanthropist uh, digging into his pocket and giving the cash um, as an early point. Um, uh, absolutely crucial to the success of those movements. You have a very interesting section in the book where you talk about the danger of uh, plutocracy. Um, and uh, you know, by which we mean governance of, of, of the very of an elite by an elite, and you've given an example there of Bill Gates and Ed Scott uh, putting money into setting up data, uh, the the one campaign as it now is in the United States, which campaigns around debt and aid issues. And there are another a number of other examples in your book of the way that foundations have. Um, in the leveraged change, if you will excuse the use of the word leverage in this way. Um, for example, you talk about the Children's Investment Fund Foundation uh, increasing children's access to AIDS drugs by persuading uh, a, a group of donors um, and the Clinton Foundation to come together. And you talk about the Gates Foundation having a seat on the board of the Global Fund for AIDS, TB, and Malaria. But this is this is all quite controversial in some ways, isn't it? Because why, I mean, why should very rich people, very, even very smart people like Bill Gates, be allowed to change public policy in this way? Why should do we do we want people to be able to buy leverage over government um, when you know most of us think that that we ought to have leverage through our democratic votes as citizens? It's interesting because we actually accept there is there's a democratic channel through which there's influence. There's also a lot of interest in the power of what we call civil society organisations, NGOs, etc. So actually, the way that we make decisions in society is partly through the ballot box and our elected officials, but also through public debate. And maybe this is controversial, but I think we would see philanthropists and foundations as being part of that civil society, the private sector is part of that civil society that's helping to enrich the debate um, 
over key issues that the town that the world faces or helping to raise the awareness of issues and it's quite interesting if you look at the literature this you'll often find people on the left writing complaining about the perfidious influence of right-wing foundations and people on the right are arguing about the perfidious influence of left-wing foundations and i kind of feel that there's as long as there's a, there's a pluralism there raising different issues and helping to enrich the public debate push the issues up the agenda for public scrutiny then they actually are enriching our democracy now there's clearly an issue when those people then cross over um, and become um, want to become elected officials and we talk in the book about there needs to be appropriate scrutiny around funding uh, of their uh, political campaigns and surely you don't want situations where rich people can use their media connections and control of the national television channels to get themselves into power but I think taking the Berlusconi example from Italy is not a, a critique necessarily of all rich people getting involved in politics and I think the role of say Michael Bloomberg in New York shows how someone who's on, who is transparent about where the money comes from can put themselves up for election and actually use their independence as an asset um, to be a more effective political leader well, I think you're being a bit kind in some ways I have less worry about people putting themselves up for elected office, at least they then face an election. I have more worry about the people who don't put themselves up for elected office but use their enormous wealth you know, from being successful software entrepreneurs to change public policy. And I, I, I had a slightly sick feeling in my stomach when I read about the leverage that some of these foundations have exercised. You know, why should Jamie Cooper home get to change government policy on paediatric AIDS drugs? Even if she's doing the right thing, it's, it's, this isn't a left-right point of view, it's a uh, um, who, who appointed you? Uh, well, question. Well, no, I, think, I think that it's, it's, clear, it's clear that, as we've said, there is a theoretical comparative advantage that philanthropists can have over other players that they but this capital can play a different role to to uh, because of because of its freedom from other forms of accountability that exist on other, other forms of capital in society and we also found plenty of examples of it having a positive effect but there is this worry you know the, the, the flip side of a freedom from accountability is the danger that they may use the power that they have uh, for ill now i I think, firstly, that's why we argue very strongly that there needs to be transparency um, and there needs to be public, a constructive public debate and that the philanthropists need to actually engage the public in debate about what they're doing. And that is indeed what we're seeing the best of them do. Um, but secondly, there needs to be you know, an acceptance on our part that, um, you know, that the, the, the they can play this positive role. But also I think we should realise that, um, as Gates says, he is a tiny organisation in the scheme of things. He cannot succeed unless he can persuade a majority of uh, the rest of us um, in our various roles of, of government or business people or uh, NGO activists or ordinary citizens uh, the, the, he's right in the ideas he's pursuing that you know, his money only goes so far and unless he can uh, leverage in that classic sense um, the rest of us to fall in uh, or, or to go along with him on his journey then he's not going to get to the destination that he wants to get to because you know ultimately you can't solve problems like 
hundreds of millions of people dying of deadly diseases in the developing world uh, with the money that he has at his disposal, even the richest man in the world. And I take a great deal of comfort from that. I think he has much less power uh, as an individual, as a philanthropist, than he ever did as a uh, as a businessman at Microsoft. Mm-hmm. So these, this um, uh, new growing transparency and accountability, you have a section in the book where you talk about new organizations like the Center for Effective Philanthropy that are beginning to track, and GuideStar is another one, that are beginning to track how foundations and, and big philanthropists are behaving. Is this, is this beginning to put pressure on foundations? I mean, to what extent are they insulated from those kinds of uh, pressures? And to what extent are they complying with... Uh, I'm very engaged in trying to increase the transparency of the official uh, aid donors. Do you think that this is something that the philanthropic capitalists will uh, get engaged in and, and submit themselves to? Well, if they're, if they're wise, they will. And I think... Um you know, I think the trouble is, it is still in its infancy. We do have a chapter in the book where we write about many of the best of these new organizations that are about trying to create transparency and create a debate about performance. Um, you know, New Philanthropy Capital is another one which has come out of Britain where um, you know, they are doing, they're trying to create the profession of uh, research analyst for non-profits. That's the equivalent of the... set up by Gavin Davis from Goldman Sachs. Yes, that's right. And I think you know, the trouble is that at the moment these organizations are very small and they're operating in a world where there's no great requirement to disclose data about what you're doing. And, um, you know, I think it should be a priority for uh, ideally the philanthropist, but if necessary society as, you know, through, through government to actually uh, invest in building up proper scrutiny and performance analysis and uh, uh, of what philanthropists are doing and what the non-profit sector as a whole is doing. I mean, it, is, it is extraordinary that we don't hold that sector to the same account uh, that we hold the business sector to. So do, we, do you think that kind of transparency ought to be a condition of getting the tax relief, that there ought to be tougher rules about transparency that, that are the quid pro quo for the tax relief that uh, philanthropists get? Well, it depends on what transparency you mean. I think the danger always, especially international development, we end up with transparency about process. I mean, we love talking about how many percentage of money goes to X or goes to Y. I think the real opportunity is to actually start having a debate about transparency of impact, which is something that the aid community hasn't talked about enough. And so getting these people to talk about what they actually achieve, provide, you know, real evidence of what they achieve, and also maybe, yeah, actually owning up when they, what they do hasn't worked. So it's about shifting that debate away from process onto actually outcomes and impact. And do you think there's a danger that if, if we succeed in moving that direction, that they might become a bit more like government donors are now, a bit more risk-averse, a bit more short-termist, if they're having to account in, in, in the shorter term for the results that they achieve? I don't think necessarily that's the case. I think actually um, what, what would happen is that um, you would get uh, competition between philanthropists uh, to actually have uh, the most effective philanthropy. Um, I think there's a tremendous competition at the moment to uh, to give as much as you as you can uh, to win the to come top high up the table of big givers. But there isn't a similar table that actually adjusts for impact. And I think these the nature of business people is they are um, often very very competitive with each other and. Uh, 
you know, I think that if it's the, if it's their money they're giving away, I think you could create a much more effective competition to do it, to give it away well. Um, at the moment, it's, it's all too easy for people to uh, give money to things that make them feel good, um, because no one's going to ever call them on it and say, "Well, actually, this was pretty ineffective," because not least you don't have the information to make that call. You've you've raised a topic of motives and what's motivating philanthropists, which was actually a topic a couple of our listeners asked about. Richard Lamming uh, asked this question: When rich people donate some money, do they have to be so smug about it? And Melinda Walker said that she hates it when people give their money away but expect to have their parking validated. I assume because they can't take that off their taxes. How really generous are they? In other words, I think people are asking whether, whether this is altruism or whether this is just the very rich getting tax breaks and the opportunity to hang out with celebrities and feel smug and get good write-ups in the, in the press. What's your sense of what, what makes these people tick? You spoke to a lot of them in the course of your research. I mean, this is uh, one that people love to speculate about. Um, if you ask uh, a neuroscientist, they will tell you that uh, giving stimulates a part of the brain called the mesolimbic pathway, which is the uh, pleasure center of the brain. <laughs> and so you can say the kind of philanthropy is kind of sex, drugs, and rock and roll for sort of middle-aged billionaires um, who have gone through their cocaine stage. Um, it's all about pleasure-seeking. If you ask a, an evolutionary biologist, they will tell you that actually it's about the giving as a way of demonstrating your ability to produce surpluses, um, which show that you're actually very fit. So it's all about proving you're an alpha male. Um, if you ask a, a psychotherapist, they'll tell you it's a way of dealing with existential angst um, to deal with something called sudden wealth syndrome um, for some people. I mean, there's a whole string of these different kind of explanations, and it's some combination of all of those. Bill Gates talks about the joy of giving and how much pleasure he gets from it, and he sees that as the big selling point for it. When it comes down to it, it seems that actually a lot of those explanations seem a lot more plausible than the tax breaks, because... To get the tax break, you actually have to give the money away. So I don't actually think that that has the best causal explanation. I think there is a lot of uh, link, we feel, around sort of peer pressure expectation. And that's one of the reasons I think we quite like the idea of people not giving anonymously, is that as we create the culture of giving, we create the expectation of giving amongst people. That's actually a very, very positive force that's actually going to promote more giving. Um, so I don't want people to go around being humble and, and and hiding what they're doing. I think they should be talking about it, being transparent about it, um, and creating a debate and expectation about what it means for the rich and their role in society. I also think, though, I mean, I, I, I take all your points, Mike, but I think also I've been struck by, um, in, in a positive way, by actually um, the sincerity with which a lot of, a lot of the people we've spoken to are going about what they're doing. I think they have found themselves much richer than they ever expected to be. They've found that they've re they've come to realise that actually they're never going to be able to spend all the money they've got on themselves, and that they worry about the effect that leaving lots of wealth to their children would have on their children. They don't want to create um, the equivalent of the British aristocracy uh, in their own family, and they think that actually giving it away and involving their children and giving away uh, would actually be good for them. Um, there are some quite healthy attitudes there to um, to uh, uh, the limitations of money as a means to make yourself happy, um, and they are 
you know, really committed to putting it to good use. And uh, I found that uh, a hopeful message for, for all of us, really, that as we get uh, wealthier, that um, hopefully the world does get the economy back on track and that more and more people are you know, enjoying higher levels of income, uh, that as we get wealthier as, a, as the world as a whole, that we will also become more generous people, and that would be a great outcome. Um, we, we've been talking so far about uh, people making money in, in software or oil or steel and then going on afterwards to spend it philanthropically. Can we talk a bit about whether there are changes in the way that these businesses themselves are operating? Bill Gates has written about creative capitalism and um, there's obviously a lot of uh, writing about corporate social responsibility. And one of our listeners, April Harding, asked on Facebook about the link between philanthropic capitalism and creative capitalism. And Charlotte Seymour Smith asks how we can get philanthropic capitalists to move upstream so they actually change the way they do business in the first place. Is there any new thinking going on about um, things like fair trade and corporate social responsibility? And are the, are the philanthropic capitalists feeding back into the way that business is done? Yeah, I mean, philanthropic capitalism is obviously a broader uh, category than creative capitalism. Creative capitalism really is referring to how um, businesses work, uh, whereas philanthropic capitalism is much broader. It's about uh, individuals as well as, as, as businesses. Um, so it's creative capitalism is a subset of philanthropic capitalism. Um, even before the current crisis, uh, a lot of companies uh, were starting to think much more seriously about how their activities impacted society and realizing that it was in their enlightened self-interest to be uh, good corporate citizens rather than um, on the dark side of that, um, uh, you know, where business so often was placed in the past. Now, some of those um, conversions were pretty superficial and others were quite deep and profound. I mean, I think a company like Walmart really has transformed itself internally uh, through its embrace of uh, the battle against climate change, for example. I think Nike, who we often held up as the, the worst of all corporate offenders because of its uh, you know, sweatshop supply chain, you know, has actually become an extraordinary positive force in that area uh, through partnerships with all sorts of NGOs uh, um, and massive amounts of monitoring of supply chains and is now you know, starting to launch products that have positive social messages uh, in the brand. And so there's, there's some really quite profound changes going on. Um, the crisis that took place last year I think has added to that trend and will probably accelerate that, that trend because uh, company, there's been there's been a real realization in in the business schools and in the uh, the commentary classes on business that actually there were there been so much of the problems came out of a short term focus that that just looked at the next quarter's profits rather than asking any deep questions about um, what the business was doing whether it was sustainable um, even in its own financial terms, let alone in, in terms of broad implications for society. So I think that although this is not going to be a business, I, I'm less less confident of business as a uh, you know, uh, uh, solving these problems on on, on its own um, than some people, but I do think that it will become more 
of a positive social force over the next decade or two than it has been over the past decade or two. And philanthropic capitalists and the public uh, can help it play that role through everything from how they give money uh, to how they spend money on the products that these companies produce. Mike, Matthew, is, thank you both very much. Is there anything you would particularly like to add about your book? Well, I think it's a, a, a um, very good read. <laughs> and, uh, I think actually I, w what we found in writing it was that, and researching it was that actually there are an awful lot of things going on that people including us ourselves, did not know about that the rich are doing um, that are very, very interesting and provocative and require all of us that really care about how our world is being run uh, to think deeply about. And we hope we um, have provided an accurate picture of what's going on and will provoke that anyone that reads the book may not agree with the analysis that we have but I think they will learn a lot and that they will hopefully be provoked to ask some deep questions and you know I just want us to move on from this uh, popular debate about the wealthy which is just oh they're a bunch of selfish people who just um, exploit and then waste them on fast cars and fast living um, to something that's more nuanced and accurate and actually sees the potential that, that some of their activities can have as well as um, well as the downside of it and I think if we can have a more sophisticated debate um, you know we'll, we will all be uh, ben the beneficiaries of that. Mike, what are you going to think I might add is that um, I suppose the the origin of this book was when Matthew and I we were we've been friends since school, and uh, Matthew played Bob Geldof and organised a charity concert, uh, and I was trying to be Bono, and uh, I was on the bands that performed, and obviously we both failed, which is why we became economists. Um, but at that event, I remember one of the uh, the uh, the songs that I performed very badly uh, was a song by the Clash that had the line, "I don't want to hear about what the rich are doing." And I since you know, this book has been a process for me trying to shed some of those prejudices, I think are particularly prevalent in Britain and Europe, uh, um, about the rich. And actually, as he says, moving on towards a more nuanced, sensible debate. Because definitely philanthropy needs to be challenged. It needs scrutiny. It needs transparency. But it's got to be an informed debate. And we need to move away from the, you know, the fawning, isn't it wonderful, on one side, and the cynical, isn't it terrible, on the other side, to start having a proper debate about what actually works. And then there's a real potential for philanthropic capitalism to really deliver. I've been talking to Matthew Bishop and Mike Green about their book, Philanthropic Capitalism, published by ANC Black. And I just want to endorse what they've both been saying about how much material there is in the book, even if you know quite a bit about the role of foundations. There's actually an enormous amount going on and it's a very interesting read, uh, very well written. There's a, a, a link on the Development Grubs website to the book at developmentgrubs.org. So you can go there and, and pick it up off Amazon. I welcome your feedback about Development Grubs, either on the Development Grubs website or on our Facebook group. But for now, Matthew and Mike, thanks very much for coming on Development Grubs. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you.
Play Fly.